I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, for those of you listening, I am joined here today with Rebecca Tabor, the founder and CEO of Merit America. Uh, before Merit America, Rebecca was on my team at Coursera for a little over three years, um, which was um, such a joy. Uh, she is a phenomenal leader and entrepreneur, and I'm so excited to have her here today to share more about the incredible work she's doing. Welcome. Thank you, Julia. Um, so to get started, I'd love to hear more about your background. So can you uh, can you sort of just walk us through your background and how you ended up uh, with uh, Merit America? So I feel like I've really spent the last decade of my career focused on this issue of how can we help anyone anywhere advance their lives, especially by advancing their career and education. And so I started my career at McKinsey in Washington, D.C., working a lot with the public and social sector teams there. And through that work, I connected with Governor Markell in Delaware and had the chance to spend almost four years working on our education system reform. That was an incredible learning experience where we were really thinking about what could we do at a state level to strengthen the system to make sure that every student graduated college and career ready. And it was through that experience that I really saw that while we were doing so many efforts in high schools and colleges, even despite our best efforts, the majority of our low-income students weren't actually earning post-secondary credentials by their mid-20s. Mm -hmm. And so whether they were not enrolling in college to begin with or they were enrolling in college but not finishing, we had so many people who were talented and hardworking but didn't really have those credentials they needed to mm -hmm. advance their careers. And based on that work, I actually was constantly thinking of where technology could help people who might not have succeeded in the traditional education system really get the skills they need to succeed in the labor market and had the privilege of working with you at Coursera with this big mission of how do we use education technology to really democratize education. And you also, as a fun fact, you also wrote the first Race to the Top grant. <laughs> that is a fun fact. Yes, uh, that was probably 10 years ago now I had the chance to work on Race to the Top. But again, that was all about college readiness and focusing on the K-12 and the existing system and this increasing realization that, yes, we can make the existing system stronger, but we also need options for people who don't succeed in traditional education systems. And so can you share a little bit about what you did at Coursera and the work that you did there and then how that then led you to want to start Merit America? Well, most of what I did at Coursera was just shadow you and try to learn as much as I possibly could, because there's no one with a sharper sense of how you combine business and mission all together. No, I was just trying to keep up. <laughs> uh, but really, I think what I had the chance to do at Coursera was to ask this question of how could we use the incredible technology, technology that made it so anyone anywhere could learn pretty much anything from the phone in their pocket. How could we make, how could we really make that accessible to people all around the world, people who hadn't succeeded in traditional education, who might be low income, who might uh, come from diverse backgrounds, and give them ways to advance their lives. And so what, uh, okay, so then, and so then you transitioned or you had the idea for Merit America. First, I, actually, could you give just a quick overview of what Merit America is? And then, and then I'd love to hear what the inspiration was um, and what was your experience at Coursera that, that, that gave you some unique insight into this new problem that you were, or new angle to the same problem that you were trying to solve? 
Well, at Coursera, we had this great technology, but we knew that technology alone wasn't going to be the answer. And so I had the really fun job of partnering with governments and nonprofits around the world to say, we'll give you the technology, but you need to help us find people, support them in getting through these online courses and connect it to better work and ongoing education. And we saw that when we formed those partnerships, it really worked. We could take online courses, provide that wraparound support and help people anywhere get the skills to advance their careers. But it was also really hard to convince a lot of nonprofits and governments that this model might even work in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so I would really have these conversations about, well, maybe I know you've got a successful model where you bring people into your center and they sit there 9 to 5 p.m. and they learn these skills. But what if by using blended learning, we could make it more accessible so someone who has a family, someone who has a job can actually get the skills they need to advance? Um, and we had a lot of success, but also felt that there was a need for a new entity that could do exactly that work at scale that could use the technology for everything it does well, but complement it where it falls short with those really important wraparound supports. So, so that was between the nonprofits that you were working with and then the technology provider. Is it, that the... Exactly. Yeah. And so that was the founding impetus for Merit America, that we have this problem where we have tens of millions of people who are working in low-wage jobs, mm -hmm. who are hardworking, they're talented, they want to advance their lives, and they're being told that their only options are to go back to school, mm -hmm. which they don't have the time and money for, to participate in a boot camp, which they often don't have the time and money for, maybe to do an unemployment training program, but that doesn't really work when you have a family and you have a job, or to dabble with online courses. But again, it's really hard sometimes to know what to take and to connect it to work. Mm -hmm. And so we need options for people who are in those jobs to advance their careers that work for them. And that was the idea of Merit America, that we could really use the technology for what it does well, complement it where it falls short, and create a new pathway to great careers. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about some of the areas where it falls short that were that as you thought about how to design Merit America were were essential. Well, I think if you look at online courses today, you see there are huge uh, numbers of folks who are signing up, but very few actually even getting started in the first place and then continuing all the way to finish them and apply them to a new and better career. And so what we try to do is to say, how do you make it easy for people to know what to take to get through it and to connect it to work. And in terms of getting through it, we've seen that even a little bit of structure and support goes a really long way. So if you take an online course and you tell people exactly when they need to finish what, if you give them a group of peers who are taking it at the same time, and if you give them a coach who's facilitating that group of peers and helping them, understanding where they get stuck, motivating them to keep going, all of a sudden we start seeing 80, 90% completion rates for courses that might have single digit completion rates on them their own. Mm. So can you describe then, how, like, how does Merit America work? Like, just sort of walk us through the experience of Merit America from the perspective of a, um, a user, a learner. Well, Merit America, again, it's all about creating that pathway that works for working adults. Mm -hmm. And so there are three things we do. The first is that we partner with employers to understand what are the jobs that they have that require skills that they have trouble hiring for and that they don't really need a college degree. These are great jobs that are often called middle skills jobs or new collar jobs. They're actually the majority of jobs in our workforce. They pay thirty-five dollars to $70,000 a year, offer real upward mobility, and often offer benefits as well. And so we understand what are those jobs that are really the demand side of the equation. 
Then, based on that, we'll create blended learning programs where we're curating best-in-class online coursework from awesome providers like Coursera, Pluralsight, Udacity, you name it. And we're complementing that with other resources that maybe an employer says are important to learn those technical skills. Then we take all of that technical content and we add on professional skills content. So how to interview, how to succeed in the workplace, how to uh, write a resume and a cover letter. And then we deliver all of that both online and with an in-person coach and squad of your peers. So if you're a learner, what it looks like is you apply to our program, you start and we have an in-person kickoff in your community where you meet your coach and the peers in the program. And then over the course of a few months, you will gain technical skills online. You'll learn some professional skills online and you'll meet weekly in person with a squad of your peers and a coach and throughout that we've seen we get that right balance where people can work while they learn but they also have the support and the feeling like it's not just another thing to do at the end of the day but something really important to commit to and so we're seeing 89 percent of our participants are earning those industry recognized credentials in 11 or 12 weeks and then what are you seeing in terms of going on to to get to get a job or, or just enter this new career track well, that's the only thing that really matters for us. So as we say, we never want to be a train and pray program. Mm -hmm. What we care about is that people are really changing their lives and getting those better jobs. And we're just at the point now where the majority of our participants, just two and a half months since our most recent graduation, are already in new and better jobs. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing is an average of a $20,000 wage gain mm -hmm. of someone who's going from working at Panera, FedEx, uh, Chipotle in a pretty you know, unskilled job. And after a few weeks, they're getting this credential, they're getting those professional skills, and they're getting a 40, 50K a year job with a real path towards ongoing mobility. Hmm. So you're, it's, you're two years in, is that right? Or what year? A little a over a year, actually. A little yeah. over a year in. Yeah. Okay. We started late 2017. And so how many people have um, gone through or, or are currently in, in, in going through right now? So we reached a few dozen folks in 2017, mm -hmm. 70 total. Yeah. But the whole model is designed to scale and to scale rapidly. So this year, we'll be at about 250. Mm -hmm. Next year, we anticipate being at one to 3,000. Mm -hmm. And then the goal is to quickly get to 10 to 50,000 people a year who we're reaching with this model. Mm -hmm. And what's great is we don't need buildings because mm -hmm. our small group meetups happen in libraries and coffee shops. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't even need to build a lot of the content ourselves since we're mm -hmm. leveraging great new educational technology resources. Mm -hmm. What we really need is making it make sense for the learners and finding those great coaches where we've already had hundreds of people apply to be coaches and over 5,000 people apply to the program so far. Is the placement side of it hard? Like getting, once a student successfully completes the program, you know, getting those 250 learners, sort of getting them jobs, is that side of it hard? And does that require additional touch? Or can you speak a little bit to that side of things? The placement side is the hardest part uh -huh. of this entire equation. Yeah. And I think the reason it's so hard is we have so many employers, hopefully some who are listening to this right now, who believe in this work, who believe that they've got skills gap, they need to find talented folks to fill them, and yet finding the buy-in all the way throughout the organization so that people are really comfortable hiring differently mm -hmm. has been really difficult. And what I like to say is, you know, at the labor market level, we see the pain of these unfilled positions. A CEO often will feel that pain as well. Mm -hmm. But for an individual hiring manager who has had their posting up for three or four weeks. The question is, do I hire someone who looks to be hardworking and talented, but doesn't have any of those typical signals I look for? They don't have a college degree. They didn't go to a selective school. Or do I wait one more day and hope for a better candidate? 
Hmm. Often the answer is, okay, I'll just wait one more day and maybe someone better will come then. Hmm. But we know that these roles aren't being filled. Even when they wait that one more day, it might be six uh, months until they get a great candidate. And when they do, they're probably just stealing a candidate from another employer because the bottom line is we don't have enough supply in hmm. the system right now to meet the demand employers have. Hmm. So getting employers to think about investing in the workforce development hmm. and Looking for non-traditional candidates has been really difficult, mm. but we think we're really onto something and we're really grateful for our early employer partners who are showing that this is possible. How do you change that? Because there, there has been a spree of companies who have announced over the last year that they no longer require an undergraduate degree. Google has made that announcement, Apple, um, many others. Um, and so it seems like there is, as you said, top level buy-in to this idea that the you no longer need the credential from a top university in order to get one of these jobs. And yet, as you're, as you're, as you're showing, individual recruiters are still using that really imperfect signal in order to filter candidates. So how do you overcome that? I think there are two things. I think there's how do we at Merit America overcome it, and then how do we as a society overcome it. And so at Merit America, we really work on how we get to every person who's involved in the hiring process, tell the story of why this is important, and use hopefully the uh, encouragement and statements of the C-level leadership that this has to happen to encourage them to act and change their behavior. So what we like to say on the employer side is we put the employer in the driver's seat of a self-driving car, because you have to make this really easy for employers. And we think we found a way to do it. At a broader society level, I think that the next frontier of corporate diversity needs to be education diversity. And we need to look really closely and talk about the fact that yes, all of these companies are removing their degree requirements, but if you look at how many people do not have degrees and are working in jobs that pay more than $45,000 a year, it's single digit numbers. And so I think the same pressure that has been put on companies across the country to have diverse workforces in terms of many other factors needs to be there for education diversity as well, especially since we know that the biggest predictor of whether you get that college degree is how wealthy your parents are. Mm -hmm. So what does your relationship then look like with employers? Are they guaranteeing to interview candidates that go through or, 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 or what kind of commitment are they making when they become a partner of yours? We have two types of employer partners. We look for employers who are going to be anchor employer partners where they are validating a new track that aligns to their needs and the needs of the broader labor market. So they're saying we need IT professionals and we know that the entire region needs IT professionals. So we'll be at the table shaping what a new pipeline of IT professionals looks like. Mm -hmm. And in that case, we're asking them to give guaranteed interviews and a small placement fee when they hire our graduates. Mm -hmm. On the other side, we're looking for employers generally who just want to tag on to those existing pipelines and hire from our pool. And that we do at no cost and really wherever we have regions producing candidates. So again, we're looking for employers who are going to step up, who are going to help shape these pathways, who are going to commit to interviewing and put some skin in the game around the talent, as well as employers who are just struggling to find talent and open to new ways of hiring. Have you noticed a difference in terms of employers' open openness across different skills? Like, are they more open in computer science or in areas where they might feel the pain of the skill gap most acutely? I, I, I'm just curious how you, and I know that you've mostly been focused on IT, but they, they are also exploring other high-demand skills. So I'm curious how you think employers, if at all, how employers empl approach employees changes depending on the skill. 
Well, you said it yourself on the pain point. We have said we have to be a painkiller, not a vitamin. So it has to be an area where there's actually a loss to the business by having that position unfilled. So where there are those employers who can say, hey, every month we have this position open, we are losing money either because we are a staffing agency and we need to put people to work or professional services or our manufacturing load goes down because we don't have the hands and, and, and bodies we need. That's where it's been the best. And when you look at where those pains are in the economy right now, it really, for middle skills jobs, uh, is technology across sectors, it's advanced manufacturing, and it's healthcare. That's where those bulk of those jobs that are really great skilled jobs, they require more than a high school degree, but they don't necessarily require a college degree, and there's a real pain about hiring that we can tap into. I'm curious, now that you're one year in, what have been some of the surprises um, in terms of understanding this problem and understanding this market? Like what have been some of the big surprises? I think one of the greatest surprises has been just how many people there are who are the ones that we're trying to reach with this program, who are hardworking, who are talented, who have all the baseline things they need to succeed in these new careers, and who don't have any other options right now. Mm-hmm. So I think we had that hypothesis, but just in the D.C. area alone, we've had over 5,000 people mm-hmm. start our application process with very minimal marketing. Mm-hmm. And when we ask them what attracted them to our program, we hear exactly what I, I said, that they can't go back to school, they can't participate in a boot camp, they haven't been successful in online alone, and they don't have have any other options. And so seeing just how hard it is, if you are working in a minimum wage job, if you're supporting a family to get the skills you need to advance, that's been a real surprise and a learning and has made us even more excited about the opportunity to change this at scale. One of your um, critical design decisions was to, to not focus on providing an undergraduate degree, that you're focusing on the skills rather than the traditional credential. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, are the skills enough? Or even though employers might say that they don't care about these things, like, do you still need that credential to succeed in the job market? We're really committed to the idea that Merit America can help get you on the first rung of a new career ladder and continue advancing over that ladder over time. And so I think the truth is to keep advancing on that ladder, you probably will need official higher ed credentials. And so mm-hmm. we're working with a range of partners now on articulation agreements mm-hmm. that can allow you to move from your uh, job into a new role and then continue to earn credit towards a higher education degree, whether that's an associate's or a bachelor's. So we think that's important, but we also think you can't start there. So if you're talking about someone who is making, again, a minimum wage, struggling to get by, whether they're a barista or an Uber driver, what they want most is a new job and the skills to get that job as soon as possible. They don't want to spend six to eight years in a part-time online BA only then to go and think about earning Mm -hmm. a new job. So Mm -hmm. we have to get them that career outcome soon Mm -hmm. while enabling them to continue earning it over time. Mm -hmm. And when I think about the design decision of where to start, I think right now, higher education in this country, it's a pretty tight box of what you have to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there's some exciting potential legislation to rethink what requirements are to be accredited, but right now it's pretty strict. Mm -hmm. And so I think you need efforts like Merit America that are saying, what can we do completely outside of the box, Mm -hmm. Uh, not to kill that metaphor too much. And you need efforts, and there are many happening right now, to change the box itself and make it as good as possible. And so we're really supportive of efforts to 
think of innovative ways to get people those college degrees, make that box better. We think we needed to start outside of it because what we hear from our participants is they've already tried higher education. On average, they already have $25,000 in debt, but no degree to show for it. And they need an option that's going to get them real skills quickly versus that long wait. So interesting. And sort of thinking of it as a non-binary system where it's not either you have no higher education degree and therefore have no credentials and no, no, no advanced skills, um, or you have it and instead creating something that, that is more granular. We talk about on-ramps and off-ramps. So we would love for Merit America to be an on-ramp back into higher education and an off-ramp if you've tried higher education and it hasn't worked for you, but you still want skills for a better job. So our belief is anyone who works hard should be able to advance their lives, whether that's through a degree or another program. So another design decision that you made was to make this a nonprofit, not a for-profit. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? You know, you having worked at a for-profit education technology company as well as in the public sector, like why did you pursue this as a nonprofit? That is a decision I get asked about almost more than any other, especially when I'm out here visiting Silicon Valley. Um, and it's one that we feel really strongly about. And so at the end of the day, the reason we are a nonprofit is because we believe that to fulfill this mission, to help, uh, again, folks who are in low-wage jobs advance their careers, it's actually not a particularly attractive business. So we do believe that we will make it sustainable, but it'll be like a grocery store, high-volume, low-margin business that is not really attractive to venture capital and the sorts of players that we would be excited to raise funding from if we were to go the for-profit route. And I think we've seen that, and, and that's why a lot of the for-profits aren't reaching this population. So there are lots of great boot camps out there that are helping people go from those 70, 80K a year jobs into six-figure jobs, but they're not really looking at the jumps we are, which is you know from that 20K a year job into the 50, 60K, because they can't make the economics work. And so the bottom line is the reason we're a nonprofit is there's not an attractive for-profit business model there. Mm. But that doesn't mean that we uh, don't have a model for being sustainable through earned revenue over time. It'll just be a break-even business versus one that's really delivering lots of profit. Um, and I'm also curious about your experience as a first-time entrepreneur. Um, what have been some of the biggest lessons that you've taken from this past year, year and a half, in terms of organization building? So I will say I think it is harder than anything I have ever done before uh, and also one of the most rewarding journeys as well. Um, and I think I actually credit a lot of this to the incredible support I've had throughout this process, including my husband, who pretty much for the first year would say to me when I would come home after terrible meetings, things not going as planned, not having the money we need, and say, you can complain all you want as long as you don't quit. And I think one of my big takeaways is that this pathway, social entrepreneurship, probably for-profit entrepreneurship as well, um, is just a game of endurance in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it's coming up against those brick walls and it's failing and being comfortable just plowing through it. Mm -hmm. And so I just deeply believe that it's not binary. You will fail or you will succeed, but rather you will succeed if you just live through the <laughs> failure. And so I've learned a lot about myself and a lot about what it takes to do this work and to also set it up for the long run because it is scary and there's a lot on the line, but ultimately getting to work on a problem I care about with the people I care about every day has been one of the most fulfilling experiences I can imagine. Can you talk about one of those failures? Ooh, um, 
I think one of the failures, uh, not quite a failure, but I think the fundraising was much more difficult than I ever imagined it would be. And so coming from Silicon Valley, from Coursera, I think I set out and said, you know, this is a hundred million dollar a year operating budget, but I can get started with 10 million. <laughs> and learning that despite those uh, uh, best intentions, more funders are comfortable with maybe a $50,000 grant at a time. And so really feeling this tension between early stage funders who said, well, you know, we don't want to give a grant to you until we see traction. And this belief that the only way to get traction is to hire a few people, build a little bit of an MVP and start doing it. Uh, and so I think that one of my frustrations with social entrepreneurship in general is I think it's actually, unfortunately, for that reason, being reserved for folks who, you know, maybe work at Coursera for a few years and can take a year off of bootstrapping uh, in order to do this. I think we make it incredibly difficult when a lot of the funders in the philanthropic space say, again, that they're they're adverse to really early stage efforts, that going from zero to one is especially hard. I think it's always hard. I think for every entrepreneur, it's hard. But I think where you're trying to raise philanthropic capital, because there's nothing they stand to gain by going early. And so funders in VC, uh, like GSV, you know there's a you know risk return profile and going earlier on is higher risk, but higher possible return. In philanthropy, that doesn't exist. Going earlier on is higher risk, but you get that same impact as being able to say you supported Merit America in month three as you do if you support it in year three. And so I wouldn't call fundraising a failure per se, but my ability to understand what it would take to get the funding was uh, largely off base and really took a lot of time to understand that when funders say you're too early, it doesn't actually mean you're too early objectively. It means you're too early for me and you need to do more convincing to get that, that grant funding you need. Hmm. What about some of the things that you did right? Like as you think about it in, in retrospect over the last year, there, there's a lot of things that you did right and there's a, a few things that you probably did right that have, that have really gotten this off the ground. Can you point to a few of the things that looking back over the last year, you're like, this was really critical for me to have done, even if it didn't feel so at the time, or maybe it did. Well, the number one thing I did right, I learned from you, Julia, which is to... <laughs> I'm paying uh, pay her for that. <laughs> yes, which is to focus first and foremost on the people. And Merit America will work if we find a way to attract great talent to work on our mission and empower them to be successful. And so everything I learned about management, I learned from Julia. Uh, so apologies to the folks on the team if it's not going well, but I think it is. Um, and what I, I think I did right was really investing in extremely rigorous hiring processes where trying to convince someone to work on a startup at you know, below market rate for a nonprofit in D.C. when there's no traction was hard enough. Uh, and so I should have been happy for any candidates I got, but was really committed to not hiring people just because they were good enough, but really finding the best of the best mm. who were mission driven, strategic, operational relationship builders who cared about what we were doing and would raise the bar for our culture. And so I think we built a really incredible team, even when it meant waiting to hire for a role we desperately needed, even when it meant, um, you know, going understaffed for periods of time, but I, I think it was worth it. That's great. And uh, so my last question is what's next? Um, where, where are you going over the next year? What's next for Merit America? 
we talk about a lot of metaphors on our team. Often we use the dating metaphor, but uh, we also use the building of a house metaphor. And I think we're now at the point where we have laid a really solid foundation and we have the initial scaffolding up. And so for the next year, it really is about starting to pour gas on the fire and to say, we know we have something real here. We've proven out that we can attract people who are talented and hardworking, but in dead end jobs. We've proven that in a matter of weeks, we can get them to complete these industry-recognized credentials and to transform their resumes and their interviewing so they can actually get into skilled careers. And now we've proven out that we can get the majority of them into jobs where they're making much more in terms of wages and on new pathways to advancement. And so when we think about scaling, it means scaling to new regions. And we just started our Dallas site mm-hmm. and we'll be picking another site in the next few months. And it means scaling to new learning areas. So mm-hmm. we had our IT learning track. We're developing another junior Java track now. We're in talks to develop an advanced manufacturing track mm-hmm. and really quickly showing that the model was designed to scale, to go across the country, across middle skill hiring needs, mm-hmm. to meet employers' skill gaps while providing this new path to opportunity. Rebecca, this is so fun. Thank you so much for coming in today. And it was really good to catch up. Thank you, Julia. This was great. 